Hey, it's Bill Simmons. I have some good news for you. The hottest take. It's back. Oh, yeah. Monday through Thursday, four times a week, you hear from me, Chris Ryan, Sean Fantasy, Mallory Rubin, Wazdeen Lambrey, Van Lathan, Julie Lippman, many other ringer staffers. You get one take, you got to defend it to the death. Sports takes, pop culture takes, food takes, airplane takes. Oh, yeah. It's coming back. First episode drops August 29th. It's Off the Pike, presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs on FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like 3-Minute Markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available. And listen to the end of this episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus, 18 plus in D.C. and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Welcome into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett. We have a lot to get to tonight. We're recording after the C's and the B's, of course, both in action tonight, both winners. We're going to do Sox predictions with Tyler Milliken from the Sports Hub. We recorded that this afternoon. That was a ton of fun. I don't think you're going to get a prediction pod like the one we did today anywhere else. It was a lot of fun to do that. Milliken's really smart, so we'll get into all that stuff in just a little bit. I should note we did record this prior to the Chris Sale start. Today, his final outing of spring training. Not that you wanted a complete breakdown of the Red Sox spring training game on Sunday afternoon, but worth noting that Chris Sale did start today. Five innings, five hits, two earned. Was not incredibly sharp. He had the two walks. He gave up a two-run bomb to Ryan Jeffers. But the big thing to me is Chris Sale is making it out of spring training, and he's actually legitimately going to be pitching a week from today on Sunday at Fenway Park, he's healthy to begin the season. We haven't seen this in forever as Red Sox fans, right? 2020 as the Tommy John, 2021, he's coming back from the Tommy John, and then 2022, last year, he has that freaky injury prior to the season. So it's really been since 2019 that you've actually started a major league season with Chris Sale. So cannot wait for that coming up on Sunday. So not great on Sunday, but I did find it interesting that on Nesson, Jemai Webster was interviewing him after his start and... He said, what's it like to make it through spring training healthy? And Sale says, well, I still have to get home safe, which I thought was pretty funny. And for a second there, I was thinking, well, this really is almost not a joke. This guy legitimately fell off a bike. But the big thing to me about Sale, and we'll get into predicting his season with Milliken in just a little bit here. But the big thing to me about Sale is just he's going to be on the major league roster to start the season. That's a victory in and of itself. And let's see if we can get close to the guy that we saw Pre-Tommy John, going all the way back to 2018, his last really, really great season with the Red Sox. But I do want to start with the Celtics. They win tonight over the Spurs, 137-93. They've been beating the shit out of bad teams the past couple of games, which is a good thing. Tatum had the night off. They did list it as that left hip contusion. He did hit his hip, but let's be real. 
they were giving him the night off, which I didn't really mind because right now he's second in minutes per game at 37.3. He's third in total minutes, and he played all those minutes last year combining the regular season and the postseason, of course, the most minutes in the entire NBA. So you get him three days off before your next game, which I like it. Okay, I like that. And one thing I will say about Tatum going back to the game on Friday night and going back to the game against Sacramento as well, I hope we are starting to see the start of something with Jason Tatum, which is the last two games, he had 40 points in the paint. And out of players like their last two games, that was only behind Anthony Davis. Him and Giannis had 40 points each in their last two games entering play on Saturday. So that was big just to see him getting into the paint more because I just hope, based on the way that he's shooting the basketball this season, which has not been great, that we're seeing him starting to dial it up a little bit and starting to live at the rim where I want to see more of that once we get into the postseason, especially with the concerns in terms of Tatum and his shooting that we've illustrated multiple times. But the big thing to me tonight about Tatum being out, it paved the way for Jalen. And I know it's the San Antonio Spurs, but this is going on for a while right now with Jalen. And I love the fact that he had, remember the story came out in the ringer that we talked about earlier this week from Logan Murdoch. You've had some comments from Jalen Brown, the future with the organization and all that. And he gets a standing ovation after he comes out of the game tonight where he has 41 points in 36 minutes. He has 13 rebounds as well. And he has 26 in the first half. And there has been a lot of negativity around the Celtics lately in terms of some of the struggles. Like we've illustrated it with the rotation, Jalen's comments, just this team has been in sort of a funk and now they're starting to get it together again. And the big thing to me, it's not just about like, okay, yeah, they're beating up on bad competition at this particular point in time. But what makes me feel really good about this team is Jalen Brown is playing the best basketball of his career. And that isn't even like remotely hyperbolic. This guy is on an absolute tear right now. He's on a heater. And the thing that jumps out to me, how about this? So we've referenced the fact that he's attacking more. And it's really evident when you're watching the game. Like you can just tell that he is putting force into everything that he does, right? He is overpowering defenders. And what it reminds me of, and don't go crazy. I'm not saying he is this player. But it reminds me of young Dwayne Wade, where Dwayne Wade was always at the basket. He was living in the paint. And that's what we're seeing from Jalen Brown post All-Star break. Ironically, this comes when he started wearing the mask as well. I'm not saying it's connected to that. I'm just saying it's kind of funny that ever since he put the mask on, he's basically like a superhero. So if you look at it in terms of, and this continued tonight, but if you look at his attempts in the restricted area, he was 13 of 14 tonight. So the big thing to me is just the attempts, okay? And look, this is the worst defense in the NBA. I get all that, but this is a trend that I'll get to in a second here. But on the season, Giannis has averages the most makes per game in the restricted area, basically at the rim. He's at 11.4. Jalen had 13 tonight. Only two players are north of 10, and it's Giannis and it's Zion Williamson, who doesn't really even qualify because he's missed so much time this year. But if you look at Jalen Brown post All-Star break, he's averaging 8.4 attempts per game in the restricted area, the fourth most in the NBA. Prior to the All-Star break, he was at 5.8 19th. So he wasn't even at six pre-All-Star break. Now he's over eight. He's almost at eight and a half per game, which just tells you this is why I say this is the best stretch of Jalen's career is because he is weaponizing his physicality. He is overpowering defenders. He's using his athleticism to just live at the rim. And I just go through a couple of them today. Right off the bat, overpowers Vassell, who... Scal highlighted before the game is like the big matchup. Jalen versus Vassell. I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, this is the match. <laughs> Devin Vassell is going to be in a matchup with Jalen. Like, come on, man. Let's be real about this. Okay. I mean, that was a joke of 
a comparison for Scal to bring up. Not that he was comparing the players, but that was the star matchup in the game. Come on. I mean, enough is enough. But anyway, that makes it 4-2 really early in this game. He has a monster dunk in transition to make it 6-6. He does hit a top of the key three to make it 13-11. Then he has a hard drive and one to make it 19-17. Then he has another higher drive to the bucket to make it 47-47. Then he runs the break and Jalen's actually past couple of nights. He's had some really nice passes as well, which we don't ordinarily think about Jalen, the passer. Right. But he runs the break. He finds smart for a wide open three in transition. Just love that pass from him where he drives hard and then smart is wide open for a corner three. And even Mark is smart. If it's a corner three and he's open, don't mind him taking that three. Right. But then you think about another right after that transition drive hard, gets it to the basket. Fifty two, forty seven. Then he has a nice, uh, like I was alluding to, these passes in transition. He feeds the ball to Brogdon behind his head. I'm like, wait, this is Jalen Brown? We ordinarily don't see Jalen Brown making passes like that, but that's the level he's playing at right now. And then he just had that monster dunk to make it 56-47 where, man, man, boo, I never heard of that guy before today, but whoever that guy was, Jalen just dunked it right on that guy's head, and he took off, like, outside of the paint, and Jalen, as we all know, is a ridiculous two-foot jumper. He just dunked all over that guy. It was ridiculous. Then later on, he ripped Devontae Graham, and then he got to the free throw line at the other end, and then right at the beginning of the third quarter, he has smaller Trey Jones on him. He just immediately goes to the post, right? Where this, we didn't used to see this stuff from Jalen. He goes right to the post, and Al Horford, probably one of the only guys on the team that can do this besides like smart. I'm, that, that's slightly hyperbolic. But the entry pass in the NBA is like a lost art because guys don't post up that often. Al waits for Jalen to get the perfect position and for the help to kind of go away. Throws it to Jalen. Jalen gets an easy dunk. He had an incredible fadeaway jab step the other way to make it 88-74. And then he had that six spin in transition for an easy two. And then after that, he had a euro to his left. He was just on another level. In this game tonight, and now, as I alluded to with those numbers, this is now a stretch that's been going on for quite some time now. And if you look at Jalen now, post-All-Star break, he's had 27 or more points in nine of his 13 games, and he's had 30 or more in five of his 13 games. So this is not me exaggerating. This is legitimately the best stretch of Jalen Brown's career, and it's because Jalen is getting to the basket pretty much living at the rim. That's why this is different, because he is... Not that he's never used it before, but this is the best we've ever seen Jalen use his physicality as a weapon. Now, one other thing I'll mention with Jalen, because the reason he's playing so well is, as we alluded to, getting to the rim. But one thing that's going to be big for the Celtics in the postseason, and we've given you these numbers in the past in terms of Jalen's been really good in the mid-range. But if you think about this, on long mid-rangers this season, this is via cleaning the glass, Jalen is shooting 48% entering play on Sunday. That's in the 86th percentile in the NBA. So he's an elite mid-range shooter. The Celtics, by the way, with Jalen on the court, they shoot 45% on long mid-rangers. That's in the 76th percentile. But here's the thing. It's a 6.9% increase. That's in the 90th percentile, okay, in terms of the impact Jalen has in terms of the Celtics' ability to hit mid-rangers. When he's off the court, they suck. It's about 38%, as I alluded to with that number, in terms of the increase, which is nearly seven percentage points. So it's horrendous when he's off the court. It's really good when he's on the court. So the reason this is important is you need elite mid-range shooters in the postseason, right? Because when you get run off the three-point line and the pain is cut off, right, when you're playing a team like Milwaukee, and these guys, remember, when you get into the postseason, you're scouted so heavily that guys are not going to come off and leave guys wide open for corner threes, right? Unless it's a guy they want to shoot a corner three, they're not going to come off that guy. Everybody's going to be locked in because it is the postseason, 
the mid-range is deemed an inefficient shot. So sometimes in the postseason, that's the only shot you're going to be able to get. And you need guys that are going to be able to hit those shots. And Jalen clearly can. So like, for example, the Bucks, one of the best defensive teams in the NBA from a personnel perspective, you could argue the best. I mean, it's them, the Celtics, the Cavs have been outstanding defensively. But you get my point. The Bucks this year are giving up 14.4 attempts from mid-range. That's the most in the league. The Celtics, too, they force a lot of mid-rangers. 13, that's second, because those shots are really tough. And they've been deemed inefficient because not a lot of players can hit them consistently. And obviously, they're not threes. So that sometimes is what the defense will give you. And if you look at the recent history of the playoffs, you need a guy that can score in bunches from the mid-range and can consistently hit that shot. So if you look at the past couple of champions, 2016, our old buddy Kyrie Irving, I say buddy facetiously, of course, but he took 7.1 attempts per game in the mid-range. He hit 47.7% of them, 7.1 per game. 2017, Durant with like the best team, arguably of all time. I mean, it's up there with the 86 Celtics, the Bulls of the 90s, et cetera. Durant, 4.7 per game, 60% from mid-range. I mean, he was hitting them like crazy. 2018, Durant took 7.7 from mid-range, 54.3%. 2019, the Raptors won. Kawhi took five a game. He hit 49.2%. 2020, Anthony Davis in the bubble had like his best shooting stretch ever. Maybe it's because it was in the bubble and the depth perception, it was easier to shoot there. But nonetheless, I don't want to get into a whole thing about why Davis shot better, but 5.5 attempts per game in the mid-range, 49.6%. 2021, 6.4 a game for Middleton. He's at 43.5%, so he didn't shoot well, but he did take a lot. And then you look at last year, 2022, Clay 3.5 a game, 45.5%, but he was also playing with the greatest shooter of all time. But anyway, so... Of the last six championship teams we mentioned there, half had a guy that took at least five mid-rangers per game and hit at least 47%, okay? The three that didn't had the greatest three-point shooter of all time in Steph Curry, and even in 17, Durant was just under five a game, so he was close to that threshold at 4.7, so they needed that element when they needed to get a bucket. That's part of the reason they wanted Durant. They needed a one-on-one isolation score, if you will, that could get to certain spots on the court that they couldn't get to in 2016 when they lost to the Cleveland Cavaliers. And the other one was with Giannis, the most dominant interior scorer of all time. And that year, Middleton, as we alluded to, took 6.4 a game. He struggled early in that postseason. But if you look at the conference finals, he hit 50% of his mid-rangers. And then in the NBA finals against the Suns, they forced a lot of mid-rangers. He took 8.5 a game and hit 45% of them. So he started slow, but his numbers actually got better as the postseason went on. So basically, if you're looking at trying to win a championship... Unless you have Steph Curry, you need a guy that can eat in the mid-range. Even with LeBron James, the greatest player of his era, he needed Kyrie in 2016 to be able to hit shots from the mid-range. And in 2020, he needed Anthony Davis to do the same thing with the Lakers. So Jalen has been dominant in this stretch because he's relentlessly living at the rim, which I absolutely love. But I just want to keep in mind, when you get to the postseason... You need guys that can hit shots from the mid-range, and Jalen Brown has proven he's one of the best guys doing it in the league right now. All right, so I do need to get to this. You guys know I am a huge, huge, huge Derek White fan. A, I may be the president of the Derek White fan club, okay? So Friday marked the 100th regular season game that Derek White has played as a Boston Celtic. Obviously, tonight was his 101st game, and it was against his former team, ironically, the Spurs. So with that game 100, I thought it was a good point to sort of revisit the Derek White trade. So if you think about what he was traded for, Romeo Lankford, Josh Richardson, a first round pick last year, and a 2028 pick swap. So Romeo Lankford as a spur, 
in the same time that Derek White has played 100 games. 19.3 minutes per game, 7.2 points per game, 26.9% from three-point territory. During Derek White's first 100 games, Romeo Langford played 41 games. Josh Richardson is now on the New Orleans Pelicans. He was traded at the deadline for Devontae Graham and a bunch of second-round picks, where I still don't know what really was going on at the deadline with all these second-round picks moving, but that's neither here nor there. So in fairness, Richardson was in the deal to make the money work. It wasn't like the Spurs were looking at Josh Richardson and said, hey, we want this guy. With a guy like Langford, they're thinking, okay, maybe he's part of our future and we'll use the pick and that'll be part of our future as well. But in Derek White's 100 games as a Celtic, Richardson played in 63 games, 11.4 points per game as a Spur, 43% from the field. The Spurs went 11 and 31 this season. Totally, they went 22 and 41. So a 349 winning percentage with Josh Richardson. And like I said, it's not like they were using Richardson to try to be competitive. They just needed to match the money. But he played just 63 games compared to Derek White in those 100 games. And the first round pick, they gave up a kid by the name of Blake Wesley that was not going to help the Celtics whatsoever. He was dealing with an MCL injury barely this season. He's mainly been playing in the G League this year. So you would do that trade over again and again. Derek White in those 100 games, his first 100 regular season games as a Celtic, 71 and 29 the Celtics went. That's a 7-10 winning percentage. They won 71, 71% of their games. He was a plus 586. Okay. Now, if you look at cleaning the glass prior to tonight's game, with Derek White on the court, the Celtics had a 119.6 offensive rating. That on-off differential is plus 3.5. That's in the 79th percentile. So that's in terms of how he increases your offense. Now, here's the big one. Defensively, a 109.5 defensive rating with Derek White on the court. That's 5.8 points better per 100 possessions. Like the increase, or I should say the decrease in the case of the defense, 5.8. That's in the 90th percentile. And just sort of to put that into context, that impact, that 5.8 points better per 100 possessions, where that compares, Marcus Smart in his defensive player of the year season last year, he was at 2.0. That was in the 67th percentile. Again, Derek White is at 5.8. Smart won the defensive player of the year last year. Rob last season, as a big man, who you're going to have more production, or I should say you're going to impact the defense more as a big man. Rob last year was at 4.8. That was in the 85th percentile. Rob this year is at 4.2. That's in the 85th percentile. Derek White is at 5.8 as a guard, okay? So how does that compare across the league? I think we would say Drew Holiday now with Marcus Smart not being the same defensive player this year. Drew Holiday is probably the best defensive guard in the NBA. He's at 3.2. That's in the 78th percentile. Again, Derek White is at 5.8. Brooke Lopez, so this is where you compare him to big guys that are going to be like sort of in the contention for defensive player of the year, Lopez is at 6.291st percentile, so slightly better than Derek White. Jaron Jackson Jr. that's going to be in that running, 5.9, one of the best shot blockers in the NBA, although he fouls like crazy, 90th percentile. So Derek White is basically in the same category as Jaron Jackson Jr. in terms of the impact metrics. Now, some of that goes to who you're playing with and who's not on the court when you're not on the court, right? Or who's on the court when you're not on the court, that type of stuff. So The numbers can get a little bit funky at times, but doesn't it sort of illustrate the impact that Derek White has had this season in terms of the defense? You have to look at him in terms of he is impossible to screen. He finds his way to get over every single screen. He's an incredible shot blocker. He's still number two in the NBA among guards in terms of blocking shots. And then you start to think about the fact that he's really good staying in front of guys. He can switch everything. He's just a really, really good defender, and he's an outstanding help defender as well. 
So those numbers, yeah, maybe they're a little bit overrated by some of the other guys that he's been playing with, but it certainly sort of illustrates what we've seen from Derek White. Now, as the president of the Derek White fan club, I also have to acknowledge that he needs to have a better postseason or this great season that he's having this year, it's going to be forgotten, right? Because last year, there was a real issue with Derek White in the postseason at times. Remember, if you go back to that Milwaukee series, right, he lost his confidence. Games four through seven, he was four of 16 from three-point territory. Easy math there, that's 25%. He shot just one for 10 from the field in game seven. So he was bad down the stretch of that series against Milwaukee. He was a non-factor. Then you go to the Heat series. First two games, he scored three points. Three points in two games. Game three, he went one of eight from the floor. So he did have that great game six where I thought he was going to carry the Celtics to a victory, by the way. And Jimmy Butler went nuts at the Garden. He had 22 and seven. And he was four of seven from three-point territory. He was really good in that game. Unfortunately, the Celtics end up losing. But Derek White did have a good game six. But that's after a bunch of bad games, right? So basically, for the last four games of the Bucs series, and for the first three games of the Heat series, he was a problem. And like during this time, he had a kid and all that, as we all remember. But the point being is he was really bad for long stretches. And then he had his moments in the Warriors series, 21 in game one, but then he goes four of 13 from the field in game two. And then the final two games, three points in 37 minutes. He was one of 10 from the floor and 0 of five from deep in the last two games of the series, games fives and game six. So in all three series last year, the Bucks series, the Heat series, and the Warriors series, because I don't count the Nets series. That was a sweep. I mean, they were nowhere close to the Celtics. He hurt the team, not hurt the team, but he didn't impact the team that he's been the way he's been impacting the team all season long. So that's when the Derek White situation is ultimately going to get judged. And this is not I'm the biggest Derek White fan. You know this, right? So we can acknowledge that White is having an outstanding season. I've made an argument on multiple occasions that he's the third best player on the team this year. We need to see it in the postseason because that's when it's most important. And last year he cratered at times when they got there. And I do think this. And this is interesting because it felt like Ime was a lot better for most of the players on the team, and he was definitely better for the defense that this team played last year, the energy they showed on that side of the floor. I do kind of feel like Missoula is the better type of coach for a guy like Derek White because of the fact that he instilled confidence in Derek White. He just wants him to keep shooting. And remember, Derek White, when he would be missing those shots against the Heat or the Bucks, Ime would just take him out. Remember, they were playing Pritchard a lot instead of playing Derek White. And I do think that Missoula has shown sort of a loyalty an appreciation to Derek White. So like, I know I've criticized Missoula a lot this year. The one thing I will not criticize him for is the way that he's handled the Derek White situation because White has played his best basketball ever in his career with Joe Missoula as the head coach. All right, coming up next, we're going to chat with Tyler Milliken from 98.5 The Sports Hub, the Carabas pod as well. So this is going to be really fun. We have basically a preview of the season. We're going through all different types of things as we're just a couple of days away from Major League Baseball getting underway. So we'll get to Tyler Milliken next. Wearing a men's warehouse outfit makes you confident, like you could do anything. So you dance like no one is watching, even though everyone is watching. Because of the men's warehouse outfit, you interview like the job is already yours because it is. Because of the men's warehouse outfit, you golf as if the rules don't apply to you because you're too well-dressed for rules. Because of the men's warehouse outfit. At Men's Warehouse, get measured, get fitted, get hot, get confident in everything from tailored suits to underwear and all the stuff in between. Love the way you look at Men's Warehouse. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Joining us now from the Sports Hub and the Carabas Pod, it is Tyler Milliken. Milliken, thanks so much for doing this, man. How are you? 
I'm good. I'm good. Opening day is right around the corner now. Chris Sale starting today. Uh, it's exciting times. I know not everybody's excited, but for a baseball guy like me, this is one of the best times of the year. Yeah, I mean, think about it. We got like four sleeps, right, before we get opening day on Thursday and then the games on Saturday and Sunday as well. So I wanted to have you on because I wanted to label this sort of like the Sox prediction preview and not just sort of like, oh, are they going to win this many games? I will get to the over-under, which I, I feel I have an idea where you're leaning on that one. But I wanted to get into some of the specifics with this team and sort of go through a couple of things. So I'll start with this one. Predict the narrative following this season for Garrett Whitlock. So here are the options. He's a legit top end of the rotation guy. He's a starter, but uh, back end, and I'd consider putting him back in the pen. Or... He's clearly not not a starter. Put him back in the bullpen right now. We don't want to see this anymore. So your prediction for what we're going to see or what this narrative is going to be following 2023. I guess I'm more in the first basket of him being a top end of the rotation guy. Now, am I saying he's going to be a number one starter or a number two starter? No, I'm not one of those people. You're not going to find me saying that. I think he kind of settles in nicely as a number three. And we've seen so far this spring. Listen, he's sitting 92, 94, touching 95. I'm not overreacting or reading too much into it. But if that's where the velocity is going to sit, I am going to be a little more nervous. I I think it needs to tick up a little bit more. I want him in that 95 to 97 range. I thought if you look back at two specific starts, that first one against the Rays last year and against the Angels, he was pumping 97 by Otani, by Trout, Rendon. Like that was as fun as any performance I had seen last year out of him or really any Red Sox starter. Um, It's just, is he able to kind of keep that going in a rotation kind of role where he's going through the lineup multiple times? We're not sure yet, but I thought last year there was a nice split. Like if you look at the starter or his work as a starter was 39 innings, 415 ERA, 360 FIP, 364 expected FIP. If you get me in that three, five, three, six range, I think you're in a good spot. You start getting to four. It's back to the bullpen. You're basically having the Tanner help conversation with you. Um, But if he can be that number three, somewhat in that Chris Bassett range, I think you ride that, and I think that's where he's going to fall. Yeah, I think I'm even slightly more optimistic than you, Milliken. Like, I think he can be one, two-ish, just because I think, obviously, we know the mentalities there, right? Like, the guy's got an incredible mentality. He throws a ton of strikes, so he's going to be constantly living in the strike zone. It's funny. I had Alex Cora on the pod a couple months ago now, and he told me one of the things they have to get through his head that's like, hey, it's okay if you give up three runs in five innings. Like, it's okay. It's not the end of the world. It's just because he's such a competitive guy. But last year was a tough spot to try to learn how to manipulate and maneuver your way through the lineup the second time through, A, because that wasn't the plan at the beginning of the season, and then secondarily because the dude's hip was messed up. Messed up. He was pitching on basically one hip last year. And so second time through the order, that's the big thing, right? 299 opponents batting average, 901 opponents OPS compared to the first time when it's 237 and 587. It's really good. Now, one of the interesting things is his slider last year did not play well against righties at all. 326 opponents batting average, 628 slug, and he did get some bad luck, like 222 expected batting average. But you also look at it, he did almost have a 50% whiff rate with that pitch against righties. So that tells you that the pitch is really good, whether it's he's missing his spots at times or whether it's just he got as I alluded to, some bad luck. Like, we can acknowledge a lot of the Red Sox pitchers last year, a guy we'll get to later, certainly had some bad luck. So I'm even more optimistic. I just, I I think that now that he's healthy, and one of the other things, like you mentioned, the velocity is the extension that he has really helps him with that, right? Because it gets on you a lot quicker. And so I'm optimistic. I, I think he's going to have a really good season. And I just hope, like, this isn't a thing. Like, last year, 
I wanted him to go back into the bullpen just because where he was at at that particular point in time. But I just hope this isn't a narrative during the season. And if he pitches really well, it won't be. And we won't have to deal with that. And the other component is, well, now you have a bunch of bullpen guys that you went out and you can depend on that actually have resumes. So this is the perfect opportunity to give him this chance to be in the rotation. And that's the biggest thing here. I know some people want to say, well, he already got his shot and we saw what it was. It was a 415 error array. As you mentioned, there was some bad luck. The FIP will tell you that on its own. But in a bridge year like this, it's all about finding what you have moving forward. Last year, why it was so infuriating was they had championship aspirations. No matter what you say, they stayed over the luxury tax. They could have gone farther. We all know that. But that was the way they went. And you had a bullpen that was already in a very tough situation. When you initially entering the year had visions of Tanner Houck and Garrett Whitlock starting in your bullpen, well, by what, the third week of April, both are, you know, you have Whitlock back in the rotation. You're pushing and pulling those things. So this is the time to figure it out. And like you said, just let him fully build up. Let's see what it looks like over the course of a season. There's going to be some bumps and bruises. The workload is going to be part of it. He's never thrown, you know, 90 innings in a big league season. So will he maybe start strong and fade? Maybe that starts to change the narrative and people will fall one way or the other. But I think he is one of the most exciting guys to watch this year. And you know, the velocity, like I mentioned earlier, I'm not freaking out about it. Let's see what it looks like once the season starts, once the lights are on and all that. Some guys are just built that way. He has the makings to be a starter in this league. And if you get Chris Bassett-like production, there's not going to be anyone here who's saying you should throw him in that bullpen. Yeah, and it's such a unique pathway, too, that he took to get to this point where it's like, oh, he's a Rule 5 guy. He turns into an elite reliever like right away. And now, two years into this, we're hoping that he could maybe be a front end of the rotation guy, which is it's amazing to think about this. Oh, it's one of the greatest finds. And there's plenty you can complain or say about Bloom. There's no complaining on this. Just getting Garrett Whitlock through the Rule 5 is one of the best finds we've seen across baseball in recent years. And I don't know. Yeah, I, I think we'll kind of see how it plays, but not to get an answer this year would be criminal. It'd be doing a disservice not only to the organization, but to him as well, because he has these visions. He wants to be a starter. Give him that chance to go. It's not Daniel Bard where you know he started when he got drafted, but he had two yeah. pitches the entire time. There's three pitches that clearly work. And why did we all fall in love with him? Because he was throwing three innings out of the bullpen. It wasn't because he was just throwing the ninth inning and getting out of there every night. No, you watched him go through a lineup. The Tigers four innings last year. He pushed himself into this conversation. Let the guy ride. All right. So let's move on to Chris Sale. We're recording about noon today. So this is before Chris Sale starts his final game of the spring. Of course, he's going to start on Sunday against the Baltimore Orioles, his first start of the regular season. So Chris Sale, from 17 through 19, he had a 36.7% strikeout rate. That led all starters. Max Scherzer, by the way, was second at 34.7. So two percentage points higher than the guy that was second in this category. Six qualified starters last year were north of 30% in terms of the strikeout rate. Rodon, Otani, uh, Garrett Cole, that that guy, (laughs) Kermit, uh, Burns, Dylan Cease, and Shane McClanahan. Okay, so Sale making his way back. The velocity is closer than it's ever been to 18. Like even 19, you go back to the velocity was down. So does Chris Sale get into the exclusive 30% strikeout club this season, which I've just named it exclusive. When I tell you, Brian, I sat here for the last, you know, 24 hours, basically going back and forth on this. So you look at 2021 when he was a two pitch pitcher, it was about 28.4%. He was sitting about 11K per nine at that time. I think a lot of it will ride on the changeup and how far that can take him this year. And I'll be honest, through the spring, it's been up and down. When he got rocked last time out against Baltimore, I thought the changeup was one of the few things I looked at and I was like, all right, there's something there. Um, So the way I'm going to phrase it, I'm going to go under. But 
I think there's going to be times through the first couple months of the season where he's sitting over that. I just expect with the workload, the first full season back, making some of those adjustments at this point in his career, we might see it wind down a little bit as the year goes along. Maybe spending time with the Corey Kluber where, yeah, sometimes you got to pitch the contact a little bit more at this point. So I'm going to go right under, but that shouldn't be you know, a sign that I don't like Chris Sale this year. I still think we're going to get a very good version of him. Yeah, I believe it's going to be high 20. So I would say somewhere in that 27 and a half to 28 and a half percent territory. And I think the other component to it is what we saw in 2021, even when he really only had two pitches and Cora has said on multiple occasions that changeup was actually playing like a BP fastball is he did get a ton of soft contact, right? His hard hit rate balls off the bat 95 plus miles an hour. It was salt to 30%, which that is like an elite number. So now that he has that to work with, and he's always had that, it just maybe he digs into that a little bit more rather than trying to strike everybody out. But you mentioned, I mean, the changeup's the big thing. You look at it in 2021, it was bad. Even if you look at the actual batting average was 444 and the expected was 317. So either way, it wasn't good. Now it's a lot worse than it looks based on the expected to the actual, but it still wasn't good. You go back to 18, the last time he really had that pitch, the opponent's batting average was 221, the expected was 205, the slug was 325, and the expected slug was 264. Like, this is a bona fide, legitimate weapon for Chris Sale, and if he's going to get back to being close to an elite pitcher, even, say, 80%, even 75% of the guy that he was, he's going to have to have that pitch at his disposal where he can legitimately strike out and even going back to two, uh, two years ago he still struck out right he's 28 percent of the time despite the numbers not being good so I'm awfully optimistic but I would say that he falls right below that 30 percent and I do believe that he's going to be really really good this season I truly believe that I'll die on that hill I know like tomorrow he could fall off a bike but I want to believe it so I'm going to believe it Milliken yeah, you're right to believe it because say what you want about 2021. The numbers are the numbers. Like people want to try to act like he showed up in 2021 and it was what you saw in the ALCS the majority of the time where, oh, you guys are only excited because, you know, he pumped 98 to get out of a gym. No, yeah. he was a really solid pitcher down the stretch and doing it with two pitches. It was incredible to watch, but it was what they needed. And like you mentioned or kind of teased that the velocity at that time was nothing crazy. He was sitting basically 93, 94 a lot of those days, topped out at 97 against Baltimore. Now, there's going to be, I think, a little bit of a finding where you're at. It's one of the reasons why they're not pitching him, pitching him on opening day, because I think Core is nervous. He's going to go out there and start throwing 98, 99 <laughs> once the energy's there. Yeah. You got reel it in a little bit. Like you got to kind of keep it within yourself. And I think as long as you're taking it easy with Chris Sale here, you can't predict any injuries or whatever, but they're handling him with the kid gloves. That's the way to do it. And he might hit another stride. They're going to keep it five innings, six innings at most, it seems, early in the year. Who knows? Anything is possible once you take that kind of you know harness off of him and let it fly. You should be excited. Anyone acting like this is the end of Chris Sale's career. The other injuries, they're freak. You, you break a finger, yeah. you fall off a bike. Like, come on, the stress fracture? Yeah, that's crazy. But you know why it happened? Because he was pushing himself too hard. That was the whole reason in the first place. The Red Sox are stopping him from doing that. I think he's in a good place. And if he's right, the Red Sox are going to be a lot better than I think most people have them at. Yeah, I can't wait. I, I'm just glad it's a thing again. Like, sale day is going to be a legitimate thing that we really haven't. I guess we had it briefly in 2021 when he came back, but it's going to be like a legitimate day. Like, we're going to start celebrating this again. And it, remember, sale was really, at least from my perspective, he was the first guy we had this for since Pedro. Like, Pedro was appointment television. 
when Chris Sale first got here, it was like every time Chris Sale's pitching, you got to make sure you're in front of your television. And now I think we're going to go back to that this season or at least try to get into the building. Although sometimes I like watching Chris Sale on TV more than being at the ballpark just because like you can appreciate the stuff more when you watch it on TV at times. But I'm just happy it's a thing. All right. So let's move on to this one. Team MVP, I had to put non-Raffy division, right? Because obviously (laughs) Devers is going to be the best guy on the team. I mean, they just paid him north of $300 million to do so. So, I mean, there's a bunch of nominees. There's a bunch of different ways you could go, and I like some of the additions they made. So where are you at? Who do you think is the MVP, the non-Raffy division? Yeah, so if I'm going non-Raffy division, I think I'm going to go Masataka Yoshida. And I know that's a little bold. That's asking for a lot here. But I think when the Red Sox had the Bogart situation played out, they looked at Yoshida, despite obviously very different price tags, their scouting report, you know, seemingly being very different than a lot of people across the league right now. But I think Yoshida's kind of where things click, where if he hits to the level Bogarts did, call it 280, 290, 15-ish jacks, and an OBP near 370, 380, which a lot of projections have him at, Steamer, uh, Bad X, whatever you want to name. I think that will be the guy hitting cleanup where it's like, okay, I doubted him. Oh, he was never going to hit. He became that fixture in the middle of the lineup that got you over this hump. And I think the defense is a lot better than what was out there at the time. And the MPB views defense very differently. It's a very fundamental heavy league. Yoshida out there, fundamentals. Like he doesn't look nervous. This isn't Hanley Ramirez in left field (laughs) trying to fake it. It isn't Kyle Schwarber. It's a guy who, yeah, doesn't have a ton of range, but he's going to make all the routine plays and he can throw the ball a little bit. It's not a Andrew Benatendi-esque arm or what it was when he was leaving here. So I'm going to bet on Yoshida. The WBC really, uh, I was high on him. It opened my eyes to a different level. Yeah, I I think there's a lot of candidates like I consider Turner. And I mean, this is amazing that this guy is going to be ready after what happened to him getting hit with the pitch. I like that was scary because that was like that was a thump like that didn't just like ricochet off him. That I was really concerned. And it's good that he's going to be back out there just because I love like what he can bring to this lineup in terms of hitting behind Rafi, a guy that's going to hit for contact. He's not going to strike out. I also considered like a major breakout for Cassis in his rookie season where I'm like, okay, I could just see this guy like somehow getting to 30 bombs. He's got like ridiculous power and all that. But I landed on Yoshida too, just because of the fact that the other thing I really like about Yoshida, well, first of all, when we heard, oh, actually he's going to hit in the middle of the lineup, I'm like, oh, this guy's really better than everybody thought he was, right? Because when they signed him, I'm like, he's definitely hitting leadoff. And then we find out actually, no, he's the middle of the lineup hitter. So I love that. And even if he doesn't hit the same amount of home runs that he hit in Japan, he will hit for doubles. Like, I think he's definitely going to do that. But the bat to ball skills are just like ridiculous. Right. So and I get it. Like, it's not he's not facing big league pitching all the time in Japan, but it is a really good league. And you look at some of the numbers there. Forty one strikeouts last year in his five hundred and eight plate appearances. That's eight point one percent players south of eight point one percent last year in Major League Baseball. Luis Arise. That's the list. That That's the entire list. It's one person. And like I said, I, I'm acknowledging the pitching situation being different here, of course. 80 walks in 508 plate appearances, that's 15.7%. Players north of 15.7%. Juan Soto, like the most disciplined hitter in all of Major League Baseball. Aaron Judge, who teams were pitching around him, and Max Muncy. So I just love like the whole... The whole thing, everything that he brings to the table in terms of the bat-to-ball skills, the ability to take walks, and now after watching the WBC and just seeing that home run, which most hitters cannot take that ball out of the ballpark, where it's an inside pitch, he somehow gets his hands inside it. I don't care who he hit it off. The fact that he hit that thing out of the ballpark just shows you that the power truly is real. So I'm going with Yoshida. I'm 
super excited to watch this guy play. Like, I cannot wait. And I'm with you in terms of the defense. I do think it's going to be better. And two, like, in Japan, they're playing on basically, like, artificial turf. So it's a lot more difficult in terms of playing defense there. It's probably going to be better on his legs, quite frankly, coming over to Major League Base, which I don't think he needs to worry about. I mean, this guy's got the biggest legs I think I've ever seen. It's crazy. He His legs are, the, those Cavs pictures, they're, they're special. But uh, the other thing with Yoshida, it's like, People want to say, well, oh, when he hit that first homer, it's against Team Italy. Congrats, you know, whatever. What he did, uh, you know, against Team Mexico, that's Patrick Sandoval on the mound. He's just shooting those singles yeah. the other way, which is beautiful. That guy had a 291 ERA in 27 starts last year. He's a legit, young, like very intriguing, good arm. Jojo Romero, the guy who hit the homer off, kind of a quadruple A reliever, but someone who's had major league time the last few years. He just didn't look uncomfortable. It didn't seem like he was sitting there and trying to figure it out on the go. So, yeah, let's see what it is once the season gets going. And I don't know. It tells me a lot that when Cora got his eyes on him, just it seemed like everything changed because he said it winter weekend. He mentioned Yoshida as the leadoff guy. That was the profile. But watching him take BP, watching him in live BP, you could see the wheels really got moving. And for those who want to laugh at, you know, the Red Sox were giving him 90 million. First off, that's what the Boston Red Sox should do. If they truthfully believe in a player and they think that he's going to be this much better or this kind of type or type of talent, go spend a little bit more money than those other clubs. That's what the Boston Red Sox do. On top of it, who are the other teams that were most in on him? The Dodgers and the Blue Jays, two of the smarter front offices in this entire sport. If they smelt something there, wouldn't it surprise me if they were really fuming when they saw the Red Sox say, we're shutting this down day one. He's our guy. We're not going to take that risk. Well, yeah, and that's the funny thing to me about the Yoshida situation in terms of giving him the $90 million is like, okay, there's a lot of stuff that you can look through and criticize Heim Bloom for in terms of his tenure here. Certainly. I mean, I've I've done it multiple times. So you definitely you could definitely look at things and criticize Heim Bloom. But the fact that there was portions of the Red Sox fan base that were mad that they maybe overpaid a guy, like, what are we doing? Why are we mad about this? This is like you're supposed to flex your financial muscles. If anything, like if they really identified Yoshida and think he's this superior talent, then you should overpay him or not even technically. It could end up looking like an underpay in the long run if he projects the way we think this season. All right. So speaking of Rafi, I did want to get to a little bit on Rafi just because we couldn't give him. We know he's going to be the MVP of the team, but. He did make a little jump defensively, finished at minus six defensive run save compared to minus 13. And remember, like prior to the injuries, actually trending like close to an even defender. It's never really been like an issue of range with Rafia's range. It's just it's more concentration stuff like his errors. Like sometimes he'll just be like the transfer, right? It's just stuff along those lines. It's ne- he And he makes flashy plays. So I think he'll be fine there. But so I, on FanDuel, I have Rafi plus 3,000 to win the AL MVP. I also, by the way, took Otani plus 220. I mean, Smart you got to do that. And it's still pretty good odds. I mean, it's 220, right? So you look last year, you had five players north of a 900 OPS. Judge, Alvarez, Goldschmidt, Eltuve, and Freeman. Rafi was eighth on that list at 879, so obviously still really good. Now, we know that Rafi was banged up a little bit, so that affected his power. But we know he can get north of 900 because he did it as a baby when he was 22 years old. He had a 916 OPS. So that year, he had a 996 OPS against righties, 608 slug, which is just out of this world. Now, against lefties, just 744 OPS, 442 slug. Okay. Now, we know he's already an elite offensive player. This is not an indictment on Rafi, but if he can hit for more power against lefties, he now becomes a legit bona fide MVP candidate. Career 270, 322, 413, and 735 OPS against left handed pitching which the average is fine, 270, of course, but 
you'd like to see a jump in the slug in the OPS. And this actually, if you go back through Ortiz's career, he went from being like, okay against lefties to really good by the time it was over. And I'm not comparing Rafi to Ortiz. Like, don't go nuts here, people, when you hear this. But do you think we see a big leap with Rafi against lefties this season or just maybe a smaller leap? I don't think he's going to be worse. No, I I have a hard time saying he would be worse or anything like that. But I think we'll start to see these small leaps. And if you kind of look over the last couple of years, 2019, he was at 89 weighted runs created plus. I'm not going to count 2020. He wasn't in the best shape. That year's weird. Throw it out. Yeah, two months too. Exactly. You go to 2021, it was a 103 way to runs created plus 105 this past season. So I think you're seeing what a one of the best young hitters in the game is doing, slowly taking those steps forward. And as you mentioned, he's already an elite offensive player. You go back to before the hamstring injury and he really sat out before that stretch and then they put him on the IL. He had a 980 OPS. It was a 170 way to runs created plus 40 homer pace, 50 doubles. Like that's what that guy was doing before his legs started bothering him. And he is not the type of player that has a problem playing through injury. Go back and watch the 2021 postseason if you need to go remind yourself what one armed Rafael Devers can do for a team. Uh, <laughs> yeah. and, you know, you call it a 170 WRC plus. That's what Mike Trout was last year. And this dude was hitting 40 home runs in 119 games, still being Mike Trout, just, you know, not as healthy. So if you're not dealing with Aaron Judge breaking Roger Maris's record or Shohei Otani, who the dude isn't even a baseball player. He's a god at this point. Like you're going to be in that convo. It's just keeping his legs fresh. And I think that's where the Justin Turner stuff really starts to come in, where you can give Devers a couple days. We know he's going to spare Cassis a majority of the time at first base, but I think that will go such a long way for you and Devers. And that was just something you couldn't do for with J.D. Martinez, who couldn't play in the field and. I think anyone who paid attention to Alex Cora last year, you could tell it bothered him. And it was something that he got frustrated when trying to put this lineup together on a daily basis. Yeah, that's a great point, because you also look at the fact that you've now invested over $300 million in the player. You want to make sure you get him to the finish line each and every season. So this does give you that luxury, bringing in a guy like Turner, where you can get him off his feet every couple of days as well, which obviously is behooves the organization long term as well. But I think he gets over 900. Like, I think he's going to get over 900. I think the numbers will be slightly better against lefties this season. And we see a bit of an improvement there. And like the home run total is going to go up just because I'm assuming health for him, unlike last year when he was battling injury, as you point out. And I'm just glad that this is done. Like, I I don't want to keep thinking about contract extensions like we've been doing the past couple of years. I'm just glad that they got this done in the offseason. I don't care now. Like looking back, like, yeah, if you Went to him a couple years ago. You probably could have got a better deal done. Like, look at what Alvarez accepted with the Astros. But we're here. It's not my money. I don't care. He's going to be here long term. So that's where I'm at on that. I'm fine with that. Okay. So I want to move on to this because Trevor's story, of course, he's dealing with this injury right now, which is obviously an unfortunate situation for the Red Sox because they were planning on, you know, having a big year coming up this season for story and now he's going to miss the majority of the season but I'm looking at it from this perspective he's going to be back at some point so true or false Trevor story is going to be a major factor for the Sox down the stretch Uh, I'll go true and the reason I'm going true on that is two things first off it's the pop we know this lineup is going to be a little thinner on that side of things so just bringing that the range in the defense with today's rules and shifting and everything I think that's going to play an even bigger role obviously And where I really think it is, it may not be just Trevor Story, the player. It may be what it does for a guy like Adam Duvall, who I think if you're really having concerns with him, it's fair to question and look at last year and say he didn't hit for the first two months of the season when he was playing center field. They got him out of center field and oh oh crap, 2021 Adam Duvall showed up and started hitting bombs. When you get into July and August and his legs are barking because he is a bigger guy, 
I think being able to shift Kike out there a little bit more, hopefully Arroyo's healthy, you'll have Mondesi in the mix at that point. It can kind of take the weight off of everyone. And if you're doing lineup construction right now, like that five hole putting Adam Duvall there, it hurts me. It's painful. I think you pencil Trevor Story in and you're like, okay, I see where Bloom. I see where the Red Sox were going this year. And it makes a lot more sense. And his little uh, toe tap that he kind of implemented before he had the heel injury, it was paying dividends. Super small sample size. I'm the first person to tell you that. But for a guy who's struggling to catch up to velocity, that gets me excited. Yeah. And the other component with story is even though like there were a lot of downs last year, there were a lot of ups and that's going to happen. Like he's a big launch angle guy. So that's going to happen when you have a guy with a huge launch angle, but he can get insanely hot as we saw the seven home runs in seven games that stretch. And the other component is like, this is just a general thing, but they were actually really good when story played. They were 51 and 43, which is oh, what a 543. Brian, What's that? Brian, well, they were they were a wild card team, were they not? <laughs> yeah, they, they were I mean, still in the conversation. Yes. They were a wild card team. I mean, that record with Story is better than Tampa's winning percentage last year. So, like, what whatever you want to say about Trevor's story, the defense and the timely hitting, more importantly, maybe that's what it is in terms of he brings elite defense. And then, and look, at times I was frustrated with him last year, too. Like, he went through a lot of downs. Like, I'd be the first to acknowledge that. But you look at his numbers last year with runners in scoring position, 116 plate appearances. He hit 290, 353 on base, 580 slug and a 933 OPS. The OPS and the slugging percentage were by far the best on the team. And you just look at the isolated power, which basically you just take the slugging and subtract the batting average, it's 290. So, I mean, this guy's hitting for a ton of power based on the slugging percentage too, with runners in scoring position. And now, like, I think he fits really well when he comes back into this lineup because as we talked about with Turner and Yoshida, you have a lot of guys that get on base and there's going to be a lot of traffic in front of Trevor Story. And I actually thought he could have been maybe like one of these guys that now you're going to see more stolen bases, I think, this season. Story is a guy that can definitely swipe bags. I thought, and look, part of it is his on-base percentage was down last year, but he's a guy that certainly could help in terms of just the overall athleticism of the team. Core always talks about that, having athletic players. So I can't wait to get him back. And I hope now just like, He's never going to be like have the Bogarts career in Boston. We all understand that, but he can still be a very, very productive player. And I'm just glad now, like the health situation, at least the elbows now solved, right? We're not going to be thinking about this all year. So when he comes back, we're just going to expect he's going to be healthy going forward, at least from the elbow area, if you will. Yeah. And you can kind of map it out in your head like, okay, Trevor Story can actually be the stopgap at shortstop. Say Marcel Meyer needs another year. Who knows how this year plays out for him? Maybe it's you know, I no way he's coming up this year, in my opinion. But if next year he's really starting to knock the door down and you see it, okay, well, there you go. You can move Trevor Story to second base and you don't have to think much. But I think just last year with all the negativity and listen, he earned a lot of it. There were plenty of times where he wasn't doing what he needed to do. And I think the Bogart situation sparked that even more. People were just angry as is. But you're talking about a 2020 guy who, you know, based on his contract and the way he, Things went this past offseason looks yeah. pretty team friendly uh, as long as he's somewhat in the ballpark, you know, better than he was last year. But he also wasn't lost at the plate. He was still a slightly above average bat. And he looked like you said, gone at times where he had no idea what he was doing. Battled food poisoning at the start of the year, signed on what, March 20th or whatever it was, had his first kid. There were just so many elements. I think just having another year being here, you see him taking a leadership role this spring. I'm excited. And he fits into what Alex Cora loves for a player. So I don't know. I wouldn't give up on Trevor Story yet. I know a lot of people have. But if that's the bare bottom worst case, what we got this past year, it could be a lot worse. Yeah. And I think, too, like he's historically been a slow starter. So the fact that he signed late 
and then he had to leave spring training because of the birth of his child. That all adds into it in terms of, as a slow starter, it's going to affect you even more when that's the case, when you're not getting your timing down, et cetera. All right. So I saw your projected lineup on Friday. I actually had the same exact one the other day as well. So I think I know where your answer is going to be. But Cora has mentioned on multiple occasions that they're sort of going to be flexible with the leadoff guy. We're going to see different guys in that space. Kike, it seems like we're going to see Tristan Cassis in there as well. So they may even try Arroyo. They may uh, try out Verdugo. So when it's all said and done, who do you think has the most games at leadoff in 2023? So if you asked me Friday, I would have said Tristan Cassis and not thought about it. Uh, it felt like Cora was really leaning that way. But at the time, not everyone was fully up and going from the WBC. Now we're seeing Verdugo, you know, hit leadoff on Friday, hitting leadoff again today. And what has looked like, you know, an opening day lineup two different ways. I think it's going to be mix and match. Like you said, Cassis against righties makes a ton of sense for me. Against lefties, I'm a little take a step back here because he struggled a little bit against lefties in the minors or he hasn't been bad, but it's clearly, you know, a little bit weaker, but he's hit two homers off lefties so far uh, this spring. We saw that huge bomb. He also hit the, the other night for the walk off. But I think Cassis against righties in that kind of rotating version of Arroyo, Kike or whoever it may be. But I wouldn't be surprised if it is Verdugo to start the year just so they can ease Cassis in. Or talked yeah. a lot about that at the beginning of spring training and then kind of ventured away. But I could see Cassis being the guy, you know, two months in once he's really comfortable. Yeah, Verdugo is an interesting one because he doesn't strike out, but he also doesn't walk. And I do wonder, too, with Verdugo is last year he hit a super high ground ball rate throughout his career, right? Since he became a Red Sox, 48.2%. That's the 20th highest rate in baseball. And he hit 222 on grounders last year, 94th of 128 qualifiers. Xander hit 343 on ground balls, which is insane. Absolutely insane. And like, I know a lot of people are going to say like, oh, that's all luck. Now, certainly there's some luck involved, but I'm not going to take away what Bogarts does where Bogarts can just like lift the ball over the second baseman's head or hit it where the defense isn't like he he, like those numbers. Maybe they're a little bit higher than they ordinarily should be, but he's been doing this for years. This isn't one year that he's done this. But anyway, my point on Verdugo is just. I don't like the fact that he hits the ball on the ground all the time, but I do think he could get helped by the new rules this year where we could see that number go up in terms of that average. The one thing is uh, he's at, what, 3.87 pitches per plate appearance last year, 78th of 131, so that's a little bit below average. If it's going to be a lefty, I'd rather it be Cassis just because the 20% walk rate after he made his debut, only Aaron Judge was higher, and he did hit five home runs in his 95 plate appearances, and I do feel like Cora likes having that power at the top of the lineup. If you look going back to Houston, they had George Springer that was coming at you right away. And then, of course, here when he started, they had maybe the greatest leadoff hitter in the game right now in Mookie Betts. So the fact that you can get on top of guys and the Cassis thing is similar almost to the Schwarber situation where he's going to work counts, too. So I think Cora would go to that like he doesn't look like a leadoff hitter, but in modern day baseball, it makes sense to put him there. The one guy like I really wouldn't want to see there, I I understand, I think it's probably going to be Kike, like you said, against left-handed pitching, but Arroyo, to me, just doesn't profile that way. You look at Arroyo, 296 the past two seasons against lefties, so he hits lefties well, but he does not hit right-handed pitching, and the walk rate last year was at 4.3%, 253rd of 277 hitters, minimum of 300 plate appearances. I just don't think that he works counts well enough, and It'd be one thing if he hit for a lot of power and he didn't work counts. Like if he was Trevor Story, right? If that's the type of hitter he was, I'd be fine with it. But he doesn't have enough power to overcome not working the counts. So if it's me, I would just go Kike against left-handed pitching who had like an unreal stretch in 2021. And I put Cassis there against 
um, right-handed pitching because I think Cassis is just – I think that's a weapon at the top of the lineup. That's the way I would go, and I think that's the way Core is going to go. I just I, – I like Arroyo as a player. I just – I don't think that's a good spot for him. No, and I think kind of the things you mentioned there, like Kike offers the things that Christian Arroyo isn't, right? It's that kind of 20 home run pop you can find there. Yeah. And, and with Kike, we saw him do it in 2021. Was it up and down? 100%. I tend to throw out 2022 a lot just simply for the fact that, you know, what he was dealing with was a lot worse than what we knew. And he kind of opened up about it. Now, did I love how he looked when he came back? Not exactly. But I think if you look at Kike Hernandez's 2021 baseball savant page and you compare it to 2022, it is one of the biggest differences like you'll find. And I think Kike, he was below 50th percentile only in barrel percentage. Everything else was well above in 2021. In 2022, it is blue and it is deep blue all over that page. The one thing I will give credit to Verdugo is, you know, it felt like a year ago or two years ago, he was pretty anti that number one spot. He was kind of pushing for that number two spot. Uh, that's where he felt comfortable. We know in today's game, put your best hitter at two and let it ride. Um, but I think for Verdugo, he has lowered his ground ball percentage each year, got it down to 46% last season. Still not ideal. Um, but if you have the Verdugo you got from June on, okay. Like that was a 121 way to runs created. Plus he really found himself. And we know now beginning of last year, he was dealing with some kind of fracture in his toe. Chris right. Verdugo's brother opened up about that. But yeah, I think Cassis, I know the old heads and the older fans can't stand the idea of a big burly slugger doing it. But <laughs> when you can sit there and work, you know, play, you know, appearance after appearance, you're seeing all these pitches, you're going up against a Garrett Cole and you're not shaking or whatever it is. It makes sense. And if the Phillies can do it with Kyle Schwarber and it leads them all the way to the World Series. Okay. Even in 2021, when Schwarber was here, you saw just what his approach did for everybody else it kind of set the tone for a team that was free swinging so crazy before he got into that lineup. I think having Cassis at the top sets the tone for everything you're doing, but I think core just wants to be a little careful to start. They don't want to throw too much on the Durant thing seems to have scarred them a little bit from that whole savior or, you know, just throwing it to him approach. So I think by, you know, May, June, we'll see Cassis being that main guy against righties. Yeah, and we will hope that Duran can deal with the twilight this year because we know that's an issue for him. So that's that. We'll see if he can handle that this year. That guy, man, I'm telling you. I, I'm I, telling you, I was someone who was very down on Jaron Duran coming into the spring, and I still the WB or WBC decision. Go do your thing. I get it. I think that was a really big mistake on his part. New yep. mechanics. You start the spring so hot. You know, you're over there. You're not playing at all. You're basically just a pinch runner for them. But. New mechanics, you send him down to AAA, let him kind of force himself up. But Bloom did a interview recently, I think it was with Beyond the Monster. And the way he talked about Duran, if you haven't listened to it, it's something you need to check because they were talking about him like they still had massive, massive plans. And I think in this bridgier conversation we're having, if he can cement himself and still be someone you call an everyday outfielder, that would go a long way. It's just... Dude, when you look in this outfield and it's three lefties as is, or you know, two lefties and then Duval up or in center field, it's hard. It's hard to break in a guy who's really not meant for center field at the moment. Yeah. I mean, I I really can't remember a guy that I've seen track balls worse than him. Like it's it's really amazing. And it's unfortunate too, because he's such a great athlete. He just he has no idea where the ball's going. It's like the opposite of Kike Hernandez knows exactly where the ball's going. He runs to the spot. Jackie Bradley Jr. knows exactly where the ball's going. He runs to the spot. Duran's got no idea where the ball's going. I mean, it's at times it was difficult to watch last season. So I want to get to this because the Red Sox last year hit 155 home runs. That ranked 20th. The Boston Red Sox were 20th in home runs, okay? And how about this? Their outfielders hit just 44 
That was 28th. Now, Adam Duvall certainly should help there. Yoshida should help there. So here's the thing. Will the Red Sox get into the top 10 in terms of home runs in 2023? So just in terms of last year, you had the Yankees, unfortunately, first, the Braves second, Brewers, followed by the Astros, the Dodgers, the Phillies, the Jays, the Rangers, the Cardinals, and the Mariners. Do you think we see this team with the additions of Duvall? Now, not having story certainly helps when it comes to that because that's a guy you were hoping got back to at least 25 home runs. Do the Red Sox crack into the top 10? I'm going to go no on top 10, but I will buy top 15. Uh, they were about 30 home runs shy, I think, of where the Giants were, and they were right at 15. So I think you start to you know do the math in your head, right? Kike Hernandez, can you get 20 homers out of Kike Hernandez or 15 to 20? All right, that will get you there. Yoshida, 15 to 20 home runs. Massive deal. Bobby Delbeck hit 11 last year. Tristan Cassis, can you give me 20 to 25? Like, now we're really getting to where you want to be and you add 10 homers there. Like, JBJ hit three home runs in 91 games. Three. You're not going to have a JBJ out there hitting three home runs in 91. <laughs> now, it may be Verdugo hitting six or seven, but that's at least a step forward. So, yeah, I think they'll be right in that 15 kind of conversation. Now, that's not the way they built this lineup. We understand that. But getting Trevor Story in August... That's another power boost to you. And I think Duvall is going to have a good year as long as they manage him correctly. Four homers already this spring. Should be five or six. He's had a couple that have hit really the top of the wall. I think we're going to see a Hunter Renfro type kind of season. from him. Yeah, I'm excited for Duvall, even though he's going to be playing center and not a corner spot, as you said earlier, because uh, you go back to it in 2021, most defensive run save tied for the most amongst outfielders. He won the gold glove. It wasn't like a fake gold glove. He certainly deserved it. And that year with runners in scoring position, he was basically the best hitter in the sport or one of them. He had 18 home runs, the most of anybody in Major League Baseball. So that and again, going back to this lineup construction with the Turners, with the Yoshidas of the world, there will be traffic with Duvall being in the batter's box this year, unlike maybe at times in the past, because he does really not hit well with nobody on base because he tends to chase a lot of pitches. When you have guys on base, they got to come to Duvall and he's going to hit for some power. All right. So the Sox, they needed to, of course, improve the bullpen. They certainly did. They put a lot of resources into it. You look at 2022, 9.9% walk rate. That was 25th of bullpens last year. 459 ERA, that was 26th. 101 meltdowns, tied for the third most in Major League Baseball. Thanks a lot to our friend Jake Diekman, Matt Barnes, <laughs> all those guys. Thanks a lot to them. I'm just so glad we don't have to watch Diekman pitch again. I can't do it. Like, I, I can't. Do, like, that was so frustrating. He had no idea. What, he, no idea where the ball was going. He, I mean, the guy, he refused to throw strikes. It was so infuriating because the stuff was just filthy. But anyway, so here's my question. Who will be the best reliever this season for the Sox? It's going to take a little bit for this to get to where it needs to go because Tanner Houck is starting the year in the rotation. But I do believe Ooh. he. I know. I know. It's going to take a little bit. But. I believed last year when we saw this team go through their best stretch of the season, it was Tanner Houck in that ninth inning. He solidified that role going eight for nine and save opportunities. And even the one he blew, what was it? New York, where he got out of that bases loaded jam and still didn't lose them the game. I think Houck is meant for the bullpen. And I've been hammering that for a long time. I think we're already seeing it this spring where he's trying to incorporate, you know, the splitter, this new cutter. It doesn't, he doesn't, it doesn't work. It, I think we've seen it enough times now. You keep trying because if it does, boom, you know, you have something special. But I think the combination of his fastball in that slider, it is lethal. And this is no disrespect to Kenley, but I think Kenley is what Kenley is. He's going to give you, you know, a three, five, three, six. We're going to be pulling our hair out at certain times like we used to with Craig Kimbrell for a closer that was once, you know, top <laughs> of the line, like as good as it gets, but is now, you know, on the other side. Still good. I think Chris Martin will be good. Schreiber, 
sweating a little bit. Swen, he looked really good his last outing, but someone who has not been sharp and it's been command. It's not like he's just getting hit. He's hit by pitches. It's kind of all over the place. I think Hulk will be your most versatile weapon. Someone you can trust in that two to three inning role. If you want to use them like Whitlock, or if something happens to Jansen, you go, all right, let's go back to what we did last year. It worked. It got us to where we needed to go. And I think you come in and you have that kind of slider against hitters out of the bullpen, man, what a unique and disgusting look you can give to other teams. Yeah. Frisbees, Frisbees. That's what it is. And I've always thought I'm with you. I've always thought Hulk is a reliever. He just, his stuff, like there's so much movement to it. It's tough to harness it for four to five innings. You can only do it for so long with the amount of break that he has on that pitch. So I look at it too, like the one real thing I, I really appreciate about what they did in the offseason is Schreiber needed help. You go back to last season, basically the beginning of the season until July 13th, he's one of the best pitchers in the sport out of the bullpen. Then he completely falls off a cliff and he was going on fumes. But like, you can't really blame Cora for that because they had nobody else they could go to. And at that point, they're still trying to win baseball games. So they needed to really address that. And they did. Now, I like that Hulk pick. I'm going to actually go, and I know he hasn't had a great spring. I'm going with Martin just because Ooh. I think Martin is a guy that you look at him last year, 2.2% walk rate. So basically the opposite of Diekman. That was what? Five walks in the entire season, which is just like remarkable to think about. That was obviously first among relievers. Strikeout rate was just under 33%, which was 18th. The whip was 23rd. He has good splits against lefties and righties. 232 against lefties, 220 against righties. The only concern for him really is the long ball. So last year, 0.96 home runs per nine, which would have been 96 out of 152 relievers. And he does give up a lot of loud contact in terms of that as well. I mean, 41.4% balls up the bat 95 plus. That was 126. That'd be my one concern is just when he does get hit, it tends to be loud. But I do like having a guy that you can go to in the bullpen where you know you can bring him into a game. He has really good stuff and he's going to throw strikes. And that's something that the Red Sox don't, didn't have a lot of that in terms of the combination last year. They had guys with good stuff, but they didn't have guys that would just go in there and throw strikes especially after Schreiber struggled in the latter portion of the season. So that's why I like Martin. Maybe I'm just like really scarred by what happened last year with the Salamoras and the defense of the world that I want to see somebody that will come in and attack. And I know Martin will at least do that. A hundred percent. I like Chris Martin a lot. And like you said, the strike throwing, it's just the complete opposite of everything we saw last year. And he was kind of the one they signed to spark this change, the whole philosophy difference. So yeah. And Martin, I know some people want to cry about the spring he's had. Dude, if you saw the ump, that he was dealing with on Friday night, who just, I, I don't know what it was, just spitting on him to spit on him, but like he was hitting the strike zone again and again. I, I don't freak too much out about those kind of stats for a guy like him because we know what it is. He's going to throw strikes. And when you live in the zone, guess what? Yeah, when a guy squares it up, you're going to get squared up a bit. Um, the one thing I will say to Schreiber, what they did to him last year was the same thing that happened to Adam Adovino in 2021, where yep. due to lack of options and where you were, you just ran him into the ground. And Schreiber, obviously, you know, Ottavino started the year in 2021 with the Red Sox, but Schreiber a little later. Yeah, when you go send that guy out to get you out of every single jam, that's what happens. And I think that's why I like Tanner Houck because I see him as the one they can kind of lean on a bit more in those spots or at least break them up for Schreiber so that he doesn't go from throwing, you know, 96, 97 at points down to, it was like 93 by the end of last year. Uh, and just that depth, that's what the Red Sox bullpen needs. You'll see these options last a lot longer over the course of the year. And that stuff falls on bloom. I hope he learned his lesson. It seems like he did. Yeah, I think he did. And and the other component I would say to all this is it also, we have concerns about the health of the rotation with multiple guys. And I do think having a lot of different guys where you can see now 
as you said with Jansen, he's probably not going to be the same guy that he was, obviously, in his prime. But Jansen is an established guy. Martin's an established guy. Blyer's a guy that's going to come in and throw strikes. Schreiber, we saw what he can do last year. When Hout goes back into the bullpen when everybody's healthy, you just have a lot more options where you don't have to overtax your starters. And we actually saw that at times last year as well, where they went to the starters too much. And another guy that's going to factor into this in some role is going to be Crawford. I mean, Crawford is going to start the year in the rotation, but the guy throws strikes. He can give you multiple innings. So I feel a lot better about where they're at from a bullpen perspective, which brings me to this. Pitcher, you're most excited to watch. Now, I really just did this so we could talk about Brian Bayo briefly here. So I'm assuming yours is Bayo. Oh, 100%. When you mentioned it earlier, and I was kind of referencing, like I saw Whitlock is like a number three-ish starter in the big leagues. I look at Brian Bayo. You want to talk top of the rotation, two or one? I, I'm fine with either one. And, you know, I think September was really where it all came together for him. It was 31 innings at that point, 259 ERA, 270 FIP. Now, there were some things, right? Like people were worried about the walk rate or whatever. He got it down to 8.6 in September. Not perfect. Better than yeah. Nick Pavetta, right? But starting to see those improvements over the course. I just, he seems like the kind of guy who the more starts he made, he learned to trust his stuff in the horrendous, horrendous Babbitt luck this man went through in July, in August is engraved in my head. You have a 404 Babbitt. You cannot be more cursed. And once that cleaned up and became a bit more fair, I think we saw a guy who by the end of this season, I think we'll look at easily as the best starter on the Boston Red Sox. Well, to that luck, the batting average balls in play. I was at one of the games where there was three infield hits against this guy in one inning. I mean, it's unheard of. And it's all like bad swings where they're just rolling off the bat. Like that's what was happening. And they were going like against the shift. Like this guy, he had some really bad luck. I know we referenced luck a lot, but this guy had truly horrendous luck. I mean, if you just go back and picture yourself watching the games last year, how many of those like little doinkers were hits against Bayo? The thing I love about Bayo is, okay, I just feel like from a... Fan standpoint, when you had a guy like Sale in his prime, and we were talking about him earlier, it's just like he's electric out there, right? Like it's the personality. It's like, and I'm not comparing the players, but like Pedro had that, right? Pedro was an entertainer when you're out there. And I feel like Bayo, and I'm not saying that he's in the Sale or definitely not the Pedro like neighborhood. I'm not saying he lives there, but he has that kind of moxie and he has that kind of swagger when he's out on the mound where you see him going around the mound after he strikes guys out. So I do love that about him. I think he's really an entertaining pitcher. And the other thing I love about him is everything is on the fucking ground. Like you look at his numbers last year, 55.7% ground ball rate, only three qualified starters north of 55, Valdez, Webb, and Kyle Wright. Okay. And Framber Valdez is like the king of ground balls. The launch angle, which anything under 10 degrees is a ground ball. The launch angle against this guy last year was 5.3%. Four qualified starters were south of that. Valdez, Webb, Wright, and the guy that won the Cy Young in the National League, Alcantara. So that just tells you how good this guy is in terms of keeping the ball on the ground. He's not going to give up a lot of home runs because of that. And it's just like, I'm trying to think. You got, I guess you would have to go back to Lester because Clay Buckholtz really, I mean, we saw flashes from Buckholtz, but you really haven't seen even Erod, who was like a good pitcher, not a great pitcher, came in that trade from the Orioles. But just a homegrown, developed, top of the rotation guy like Bayo's the first time we've really had a chance to see somebody like that. So I'm just excited to see where it goes. Now, maybe we're getting like a little too excited for him because he's still in his really his embryonic stages as a major league pitcher, if you will. But I'm, I'm like appointment viewing. Like I talked about it with Sale. When this guy gets on the mound, his first start of the season, like you got to watch it. You got to see what he does because you don't want to miss anything. No, and that's 100% it. Like, if you were to craft a guy built for Fenway Park in the AL East, it's him. 
Like you have a ground ball rate that high. You're not sitting there worrying. Oh God, this is going to go over the monster. Oh, he's going to take advantage of the short pork in New York or Camden, wherever name those spots. You don't have to worry about any of that. And the craziest part of it, listen, in terms of development, if anything that could have gone wrong last year went wrong, it was that he had 50 innings and he had to come up because truthfully, the whole pitching staff just got hurt. And you could tell the Red Sox didn't want to do it. They did everything in their power right. to avoid it. Um, and he came up and he got, you know, on top of it, cracked on by that bad luck. But for him not to crack when we've seen guys crack, especially pitchers, how many touted pitching prospects have we had come up over the years where it yeah. was a rough start and we knew by the end of the year, all right, this ain't it. He thrived through it. He got past it. And at the end of the year, we're watching him carve up New York. We're watching all these big moments, him getting excited on the mound. Like we have not had something like this in so long since a John Lester. And I, you know, you're talking young guys to get excited about. He is first in line for me again and again. And that says a lot when you have Tristan Cassis, you know, yeah. Garrett Whitlock moving to the rotation. He's the guy everyone wants to watch and working with Pedro all off season. And you tell me your biggest takeaway is, yeah, you know, we've been working on pitching inside. Now I'm 24. I, I'm not going to act like I was watching Pedro for someone like you, Brian, <laughs> who really got to enjoy that. I know that has to get you excited. Yeah, I mean, and even me, like, I, I was really young when Pedro was pitching. I remember going to the Home Run Derby in 99. Like, that's when Pedro was, like, at his peak. That All-Star game, the next day, he struck five out of six guys out. I just remember it was, it was high in the Home Run Derby, man. If I could go back in time and watch it again, like, McGuire all juiced up, was hitting balls, like, 600 feet out of the ballpark. And Griffey won, who was my favorite player growing up. I mean, who's play, whose favorite player wasn't Griffey growing up if you grew up, like, when I did? The guy just had the sweetest swig of all time. So I can't wait to – and the stuff is electric, too, like – to steal like the Eck phrase, it's easy cheese. Like we see guys like when they're throwing hard, like with Bayo, it just looks like it's easy coming out of his hands. To So, I, I mean, too bad we're not going to have Eck this year, but it is easy cheese. Eck may have to like come back for a couple games games after he watches like sees Bayo pitch a couple more times. He's going to like want to come back. All right. You Milliken. could just see Eck was having the time of his life just like we were. You know what I mean? Yeah. And well, the the, it was thing- such. It was a great story in a bad year. You know what I mean? Like you needed that. And the thing I'll mention is, you know, the forearm tightness. Trust me, I'm still nervous. I'll be nervous until we're in July and he's starting every fifth day and we're not even thinking about it. It's been two months since he's came back, but or three months at that point, whatever it would be. But for him to look like he did in that first outing where, hey, it's pumping out. It still looks as easy as it ever did. He's confident. That meant a ton to my nerves. It allowed me to breathe just a little bit. So all green flags on that front. And I don't blame the Red Sox for taking it slow because this guy, he is one of your keys to the future. All right, Melican. So we'll let you out on this one. So I know you've been in the past a big bloom defender, and I know you've gotten to a lot of battles at 98.5 over the <laughs> Too many. Over bloom. A lot of them. It's entertaining, man, though. I like it. So more likely, or I should say the narrative surrounding Heim after 2023, I'll give you these two. Like, oh, my, these signings work. Yoshida was really good. Jansen was good. Martin was good. Look at Duvall. He hit 30 home runs. And, hey, the Red Sox are in the playoffs, and Heimblum's good at his job again. Or this team's bad. They were all banged up. They weren't good. Jansen looked like he was over the hill. I don't know why I'm getting so specific with Jansen. But, anyway, he needs to get his walking papers. So, either we're really back all in on Heimblum, or we're saying this guy needs to go. So, I think people that have heard of me, like, in 2021, there was no one pushing that bloom button more than I was that I was hitting that every damn day. Cause I was taking my W's. Now I'll tell you going into this past season, I've held the luxury tax. You can go back and play the tapes. No one killed him more for that luxury tax the next day than me. I thought it was a disaster when he decided to stay over it. I think it's a disaster today and it shaped your off season in a lot of ways, along with not doing anything. Once sale went down last year and 
forcing yourself to jerk Whitlock and Hulk back and forth. But yeah. if I'm going to sit here, I think my expectations are different than a lot of people. If they win 84 games, which is where I have them, and you see Yoshida really have a good year, Martin Jansen worked fine. Duvall played his part. It was a good year. They were in the race until call it the last week of the season. Um, I think Bloom keeps his job at that point, especially considering they didn't go over the luxury tax. I think you set your expectation based off that in this league. If you're over the luxury tax, you're trying to win a World Series. If you're under, you're admitting what the expectations are for that year. So I think, yeah, they win 83, 84 games. They're in it. Cassis, Bayo, how does those, how's the development for those guys? But I think he'll end up being around because it seems like they're really betting on that next wave. Rafaela, Meyer, all these different pieces coming up in the next couple of years. Nick York with this new batting stance. Let's see if it works. That seems to be what they're betting on. You just can't have it go off the tracks this year. Yeah, I'm with you. I think that the Red Sox, they're definitely going over the 78 and a half. The new schedule certainly helps them when it comes to that as well. So I do think that Bloom is going to keep his job after the season. I think we're going to see an improved thing. And the one thing I'll give Bloom a lot of credit for, and I've been critical of him just like a lot of people have, the one thing I'll give him a ton of credit for is the fact that he went out there and sort of changed the way that he attacked the bullpen. In the past, it was it's all these guys with stuff and under the radar sort of guys. And this isn't like getting into a money thing with Bloom. It's just the fact that he was trusting the traits too much, I felt like. And this year, I give him a lot of credit. Like I said, they got to get established relievers and he went out and did it. So the fact that he learned from some of the mistakes previously, I do give him credit for that. As, as hard as I've been and harsh as I've been on High Bloom at times, I give him a lot of credit for that. All right, that is Tyler Milliken from the Sports Hub, the Krabis Pod as well. Milliken, this is a ton of fun, man. We're going to have to have you on back during the season as well. And I mean, Thursday cannot come soon enough, man. Like, are you going to sleep on Wednesday at all or what? I, I don't know if I will be able to, but I'm going to try my best. And uh, I think we've all talked about it, how much a big start for them to start the year will go. Uh, they need it. Now, listen, in 2021, you got slept three games by the Orioles. But <laughs> deal with the injuries. If you can just play a little bit better than 500 ball with what's going on in the division, you'll be in that conversation once Trevor Story's back and let it fly from there. All right, Milliken. Great stuff, man. Thank you, man. It was a pleasure. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Great stuff there from Tyler Milliken. Really enjoyed chatting with him, getting ready for the season. I am so fired up. I mean, this is unbelievable. Baseball, playoffs. I mean, I am fired up. Playoffs in the NBA, I should say. Stanley Cup playoffs. Like, let's go. This is a great time of the year. Cannot wait. All right. Let's get some of the voicemails in here today. 617-396-7172. 617-396-7172. All right. Who's up first? Hi, Brian. This is Debbie from Framingham. This thing about Joe Missoula and did the Celtics pick the wrong coach. Um, I think what happened, I told my son after the All-Star game, that he seemed to be kind of mean to the reporters, and the team seems to be slowing down. And I said, I think what it is, is he didn't want to be head coach. It's too much responsibility and too much work. And he just didn't want it. He liked what he was doing before. So 
and also with um, JB and Tatum, I said to my son again a year ago, I said, Tatum, uh, Tatum doesn't want to seem to share the limelight with anybody, especially, you know, JB, because he's top next to him. So I said, JB has to, I mean, I said, uh, Tatum has to grow up a little bit more and realize that he needs to share the limelight with the other players, especially JB. And I said a year ago that JB was underrated. A long time ago I said it, that he's looked over. Okay, thank you. All right, a lot of meat on the bone there. So first to the Tatum point, I don't believe that he thinks that way about Jalen Brown. Like, I don't. I think he's fine with cheering the spotlight with Jalen Brown. I don't think that's an issue whatsoever. I don't think that those two guys individually have ever had issues with each other. In fact, Jalen actually says that in the article with Logan Murdoch. Now, they're not like best friends. They're not hanging out every day, but they're fine on the court. They have a good relationship. Like Jalen said in the article with Logan, the most important relationship is they're really good playing basketball together. So that's like the most important thing. So I don't think there is an issue there. To your point about Jalen being underrated, I totally agree with you because I think what happened last year is everybody looked at that playoff run. And look, I'm guilty of this in some sense as well. Everybody looked at that playoff run and were like, this guy's turning the ball over like crazy. But what we missed was the shot making was unbelievable. Like I was talking about earlier, his mid-range jumper, his mid-range pull-up game that is so good. So I do agree with you on that. To the Missoula point, I believe that he wanted the job. I don't think that he was in a place where he enjoyed what he was doing before and he didn't want to advance. You're not a competitor if you don't want to advance. But I do have concerns about Joe Missoula, right? And I've illustrated them on multiple occasions. Now, good sign is Jalen has been living in the paint and Jason Tatum, we've seen at least the past two games when he was out there, obviously didn't play against San Antonio. He's been getting to the basket more. So maybe that's a good sign as we get closer to the postseason. What I think is going to be really compelling is to see how Joe Mazzulla coaches in this game on Thursday. Because we are going to dissect this game, probably myself included, because we're going to be podcasting on Thursday, of course. We are going to be dissecting how Mazzulla coaches this game because it's against the Bucks, the one seed. It seems like Milwaukee's going to get that, but this is a huge game for the Celtics. This is the third where these guys go up against each other. Middleton's going to be there for the Bucks, unless something crazy happens this week. The Bucks are going to have their guys. The Celtics are going to have their guys. And we're going to see how Missoula does against Mike Budenholzer. And I don't think Mike Budenholzer is like this unbelievable coach. But what I do want to see is sort of the rotation. Because what we can't see is if Derek White's playing really good, all of a sudden Derek White's not in the game at the end of the fourth quarter and the Celtics lose. That's going to look really bad for Missoula. So I'm very, very interested to see that game on Thursday night. All right, who's up next? Hey, Brian. It's Eric uh, from Portland, Oregon. I was just listening to you talk about Lamar. And uh, I've been thinking about this guy for a few years now. And... Maybe you can help me understand. Uh, he, uh, so I'm old and I have an antiquated notion of what makes a great quarterback, which is a guy who can stand back in the pocket and sling it around the field and pick a defense apart with his arm and throw for 300 plus yards a week and two to three touchdowns a week. And that's like what a great quarterback looks like. And then Lamar comes along and I look at his stat line every week and it's like, 14 for 23 for 176 yards and he's a great quarterback and I'm like I don't get it like what's going on here but like when he's healthy he wins so clearly I'm wrong like and I acknowledge that like my my idea of what constitutes a great quarterback is outmoded and that's cool and uh but I guess my question is what happens in the fourth quarter of a Super Bowl when you need your quarterback to take you down the field in two minutes. Uh, like, can that 
can that model of quarterback work in that scenario? Um, and I'm, that's not a rhetorical question. I'm not saying the answer is no. I don't know. Maybe, maybe, uh, maybe it can, but like, and maybe I just got spoiled by seeing Brady do that so many times, like just put the ball where he wanted it to go every time. And that's what a great quarterback looks like. And maybe the reality is that great quarterbacks can look different from that. And, uh, so I don't know. I'm, I'm curious what your thoughts are. Uh, great job on the show. Thanks. Bye. Okay, really appreciate the call. And that's a very compelling question and an interesting point that you bring up. So the first thing I'll say to that is I'd like to find out, right? I'd like to have Lamar Jackson on the Patriots and they're playing in the Super Bowl and we can find out, hey, can you, he bring you back in a game? But that has been one of the knocks on Lamar Jackson is when he's trailing in games, you don't see a lot of comebacks when you make it a team that has to pass the ball. But I don't think Mac Jones is any sort of dynamic passer where he's a better just a pure pocket passer than Lamar Jackson. I believe Lamar Jackson has shown an ability to play from the pocket as well. And the other thing I would just say about this in terms of the Lamar and the Mac situation that I was kind of getting into the other day. And like I said, to your point, like we would have to find that out, but I would certainly like to find out because I think he's good enough to get you into the postseason because we've seen it. He's done it multiple times in Baltimore. And I'd like to see Belichick and company get the opportunity to design an offense around Lamar's skill set. We saw a little bit of of it in 2020 with Cam Newton, the ability to run the football, but you can go completely to the next level with Lamar Jackson. But here's the interesting thing, I think, or I don't want to say interesting, maybe the unfortunate part for the Pats is I've said on multiple occasions, like the number one thing should be get a number one option. I would like that guy to be Judy, but whether it be Hopkins, whether it be if T Higgins really does become available. Okay. If you can get one of those guys, great. But here's the thing I would also pose is think about where this division's at right now. Let's go with the assumption, because I think everybody is, that you have Aaron Rodgers with the Jets, okay? That roster is loaded with Garrett Wilson and with Sauce Gardner defensively. At some point, they're going to get Hall back, who had a great rookie season as it pertains to running the football. That defense was really good last season, okay? That team is loaded. You look at the Miami Dolphins, that team is incredibly stacked as well, and they just added Jalen Ramsey, and we know what they can do offensively. And then you have the Buffalo Bills that have been the standard of the division for the past couple of years now ever since Tom Brady left to go play for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, right? It's been their division since Tom left. So even if you had gone out there, even if you do go out there and get a Judy or get a T. Higgins, I still think you're the fourth best team in the division. And I know a lot of Patriots fans like don't want to hear that, but how are you better than the Jets? How are you better than the Dolphins? How are you better than the Bills? All those teams will have quarterback advantage on, uh, advantages on you. So yes, you're going to be better. And you couldn't be worse than you were last year from a pass game perspective, but you're still not on the same level as those other teams. That's why I continue to say it makes a ton of sense to get Lamar because with Lamar, okay, now you're competing with a quarterback that can get you to where you want to go. So that's why my whole thing is like... I. I just look at the Patriots roster and say, it's not just like, okay, get the receiver. It's you may need the new quarterback. So if Lamar is there, go ahead and get Lamar Jackson. All right. Good stuff. It's a good thought. And I'm sure we're going to continue to talk about this as we get closer to the draft, which is less than a month away. Like I said, this is the greatest sports time of the year. We get the draft coming up as well. All right. Make sure to get your voicemails in 617-396-7172, 617-396-7172. Great stuff tonight on the calls. All right. So the Bruins, by the way, they're playing... In Carolina, after beating the Lightning, of course, on Saturday afternoon, they have no Bergeron. He's out with an illness. They give Marshawn and Lindholm the night off. They're 
Jim Montgomery says it's for nagging injuries. They've been dealing with stuff. And the Bruins still find a way to pick up their 27th road win, which is the most in franchise history. They do it, of course, at a shootout. Yeah, the DeBrus goal and the Coyle goal in the shootout. The DeBrus one was nasty. But think about this. You're playing Carolina, who, from my perspective, is your biggest threat in the Eastern Conference. That team beat you in the postseason last year. It's a very talented team. And you're without the plus-minus leader in the NHL in Hampus Lindholm, who should be at least in the discussion for the Norris Trophy. He's not going to win it, but he should be in the discussion. And Bergeron is probably going to win the Selkie again, and he wins it every year. He's one of the most of all time. And then Marshan, who is second on your team in points. You're without all those guys, and you still find a way to win this game. Now, it got dicey there, but you think about how this one started. Pasta scores on that feed from McAvoy on the breakaway were a pretty soft goal from Frederick Anderson. I think we can all agree on that, but you'll definitely take it. Pasta on a breakaway. You like those chances. Then the second goal from Pasternak comes on a power play. A really nice feed from Zaka. So then after that, <laughs> you thought you were going to get another goal, but you had that whole situation where, or I should say that was prior to that power play goal, where McAvoy goes out at Martin Hook after Martin Hook got into it with Swayman and Swayman pushed him. And then, so they take off that goal that was scored by Bertuzzi. But this is now two games in a row where the Bruins are really going at the opponent, a team that they could see in the postseason. In the case of Carolina, it'd be in the conference finals. But we saw it with Tampa the other day as well, right? Remember on Saturday, right at the beginning of that game, you have Hathaway and Pat Maroon going at it. So you can now see like we're getting closer to the postseason. And we're at a point now where these are teams that really don't like each other. They saw them in the postseason last year. So you love the physicality when it comes to that as well. Okay. So then the start of the third period. Now you did add a goal as well on the Lauko goal, which is really nice, by the way. Unfortunately, he went down in this game, appeared to be a knee injury. It looked like his right knee got buckled, but really nice goal that he had. But then the start of the third period, the Hurricanes really took it to the Bruins, right? They had the two quick goals and Montgomery calls the timeout. Remember you had Clifton just loses Aho for the equalizer, which I, that can't happen. I don't know what Clifton's doing there. He took a penalty after that. They were able to kill it, but Montgomery takes a timeout to try to settle these guys down. And the first six minutes of the third, it was just completely all Carolina. They were just completely dominant. And luckily, the Bruins get this thing to overtime. And at the very end of overtime, Swayman has a save on Brent Burns, where Burns takes it all the way to the net. So you get a save from Swayman. He's got to get back up and get ready for the stall shot. He saves it just to get this thing to overtime. And then, as we know, the two... Goals in the shootout, Coyle and DeBrus to win this game. But it's just a gutsy performance from the Bruins because clearly in that third period, Carolina was the better team and they still found a way to at least they guaranteed themselves a point and then they win in overtime, of course, to pick up the win. But it was huge just to get out of there and win that game. So you have now back-to-back games where you play the Lightning and you play the Carolina Hurricanes and you beat them both. That is very impressive from a Bruins perspective. Those are two teams that you have a really good chance of seeing in the postseason. And I did think that Pasternak, of course, it's his first 50-goal season, and then he added another one on the power play to make it 51. So now he has 28 five-on-five goals. That's second to only Connor McDavid. He's been an elite player that has taken another step this year. It's kind of similar to the Jalen Brown situation, right? Now, Pasta's on a different level than Brown. Like, Pasternak's one of the five best players in the NHL right now, at least one of the five best forwards. I mean, we can agree on that. If it's not for Connor McDavid, this guy is winning a Hart Trophy this season. No doubt about it. So the goals are a career high. The points a career high. He's a plus 31 entering Sunday. That's a career high. His previous high was plus 21. Look, a lot of it has to do with you're on a stack team, but Postonark deserves a lot of credit. He's the best player on the team. And by the way, that plus 31 entering Sunday was fifth among forwards. 
And what we've seen, he's just really, really, as he's been throughout his career, he's incredibly dangerous, but I feel like he's gotten to a new level this year. And I do feel like now, after this huge season, we need to see that great postseason run from Pasternak. We see it from all the great players in NHL history, whether it be Alexander Ovechkin, whether it be going all the way back to the real greats, like the Wayne Gretzky's of the world, right? We see this from all the great players in the history of the sport. They have these great postseason runs, right? We saw it last year from a guy like Nathan McKinnon. And this needs to be the year where Pasternak has that unbelievable postseason run because Cal McCarr last year, he had the great postseason run as a defenseman. Like you need to see this from David Pasternak, right? So if you go back to last year, five on five in that series against Carolina, just two points. So you would just like to see your best player play better when you get into these series. And look, this is his 26-year-old season, and he's having the best season. So this is not like an indictment on his career. He's in his prime. He's entering his prime right now. But this is where you make your name. Pasta in the Stanley Cup final, going back to St. Louis, a series worse minus seven, just four points in seven games. And look, that was his 22-year-old season. He was still very young, right? And now this team, when you compare this team compared to the 19 Bruins, this team has depth. And they're more equipped, even though that team went to the Stanley Cup final, this team is more equipped to make a deep run than that team was. And that team did actually make it there. But I just think the system in terms of the defensemen being active in the rush, guys like DeBrusque having their best season as well. There's certainly more depth on this team where I think there's not going to be as much pressure on that perfection line. Right. And obviously, Pasternak's barely been playing. Well, I shouldn't say barely, but mainly playing on that line, of course, the check line with Krejci. And Zaka, but this is where I felt like at times during the postseason, especially when you went on the road and you didn't have last change, you had a situation where those other teams were putting their shutdown line on the Bergeron, Marshawn, Pasternak line. And if that line got shut down, the Bruins ordinarily were losing those games. And I just feel like this year, that's going to be a lot more difficult for teams to do against this Bruins team, which opens it up for Pasternak to have a bigger postseason run. But I do think it's very important that he makes this run. He has that postseason where it's like David Pasternak is clearly the best player in the postseason. I do believe like the Bruins are going to be good no matter what in the postseason. I just feel like Pasternak having that run would sort of stamp him. And look, he's going to finish second probably for the Hart Trophy, as we alluded to. But it'll stamp him as like the upper echelon in the NHL right now. He's one of the best players, but I think he goes to a totally different level if he has that postseason run. All right, as always, make sure to get your voicemails in 617-396-7172. 617-396-7172. Email your thoughts and questions to offthepike at gmail.com. Thanks to Jamie McClellan and Steve Surdy for producing this podcast, and we'll chat with you on Tuesday.